The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is Isaiah 61, 1 through 11. It's Isaiah 61, 1 through 11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness." the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, TK. I feel like I'm a little far away from y'all. Um, you know, we had a, uh, a big office uh, party 
over at the academy earlier this summer. And you know how when you have um, when you have office parties, one of the things that you that you'll often do is you'll have these kind of icebreaker games, kind of get to know you games and and so forth. Uh, there's this one, it's called Empire. Now, Empire is not to be confused with the, uh, the online game that many of you play on your devices or whatever. It's called Empire, and the way that Empire goes is you're trying to build your own empire uh, by capturing the other players in the group. And there were about 30 of us, and what you do is you start off uh, and each one of you will come up with a name. Like we could do it right here, right? Each one of you would come up with the name of some famous person from history. It could be a celebrity, some sports figure, some great historical figure. But the goal is to try to come up with a name that is your secret identity and uh, to come up with a name that is so sort of um, kind of unlike you or whatever that no one would ever guess that you would have come up with that name. Well, I didn't know that at first. Um, what you do is when you come up with a name, the names are all given, they're put on a list. The list is read once or twice aloud and everybody has in their mind the names that, that were on there. And then they can go around and kind of ask questions of you uh, and try to guess who your secret identity is. And if they, if they guess that that's who you are, then they've captured you and then you have to become part of their empire, part of their kingdom. And so the first person that, that I thought, well, I'll do this. Uh, and I, I thought you're kind of supposed to kind of guess someone or, or come up with a name that was similar to kind of what you thought people would think of you. And so uh, I came up with Flannery O'Connor. And, and I thought to myself, uh, well, yeah, I mean, of course, I'm erudite. I'm very, very clever like Flannery O'Connor. My writing is much like hers, right? And um, I thought, you know, they'll, they'll know this is me pretty quickly because, again, who's more like Flannery O'Connor in this room than, than probably me? And and I waited and waited. Nobody guessed that I was Flannery O'Connor. I mean, I was there like until the very end and everybody was trying to figure out who Flannery O'Connor was, but it couldn't be David Filson. Uh, anyway, they finally guessed it was me. So we went for a second round. This time I thought to myself, okay, I'm gonna find someone utterly unlike me, someone that they'll never guess would be my identity and I will remain to the very end. And so I submitted the name of uh, pop super sensation fashion model, and the inspiration for countless YouTube uh, makeup tutorial videos, Dua Lipa. Now, some of you may know who Dua Lipa is, some of you may not. And I thought they'll never figure out or think that, that that's me because I'm nothing like her. I mean, I got a beard. I'm, I'm manly. I lift heavy things. Boom, I was captured right out of the gate. As soon as we started, you're Dua Lipa, you're mine. And so I was, I was out for the count. So it's this game where you have to guess people's secret, secret identity. Now, last week, um, I said, now listen, why would I pick, I've got a teenage daughter. I know about makeup tutorials on YouTube, all right? Don't judge me. Last week, I said that Isaiah is like what I would imagine it would be like trying to find your footing on a climb on Mount Everest. Wherever you are, uh, there's so much beautiful behind you and there's so much beautiful uh, ahead of you. And, and it's good to know where we've been and, and kind of where we're going. You can't just jump anywhere into the book of Isaiah uh, without understanding the context, right? It was Charles Spurgeon, that great London Baptist Prince of Preachers who said any text without a pretext and a post-text is usually out of context, right? And so we spent time last week trying to get at the context of our text in Isaiah. We're gonna kind of do the same thing here because part speaks to part all through. It's such a beautifully woven tapestry, the book of, of Isaiah. Now, the, the climb is worth it, right? Wherever you are, but, but it's good to just take time and try to figure out, okay, what has come before? What's going after? Now, here for our text this morning, uh, Isaiah 61, you know, one of the most glorious, promise-filled passages in all the Bible, a new speaker emerges. Did you notice that? 
kind of a new mysterious figure begins to speak, begins to make promises, begin to make proclamation, right? This mysterious figure, we, we're gonna figure out who he is. We're gonna have to pay attention to the light that has come upon God's people all the way back in chapter 60, the chapter right before. In chapter 60, verse one, right? A light has come upon them. Right? A people who had stumbled in darkness saw that very light all the way back in Isaiah chapter nine, verses one to seven, right? With the Christmas promise of the child in verse six, who would be born to them. A people whose sin had separated them from God needed this light, needed this child to be born. Well, this child is born. And then you fast forward in Isaiah to chapter 59. And this child in verses 14 to 21 is now a great warrior. In fact, turn a couple of pages back. And look at Isaiah 59. We're going to pick up at verse 14. Again, just some things in Isaiah to sort of set the stage for us so it can make sense of our text this morning. Justice is turned back, Isaiah 59, 14. And righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him. And there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. There was no intercessor, no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which, will, which the wind uh, of the Lord drives. And a redeemer, this is the good news of the gospel, a redeemer will come to Zion. There was no intercessor, but now a redeemer is going to come. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them. And we talked about covenant a few minutes ago. This is my covenant, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I've put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring. Right? That's why we baptized little Micah just a few minutes ago. My word shall not depart from your mouth or from the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So right, this baptism was basically a sacramental outward sign of this very promise. I talked to you about Genesis 12 to 17, but here we are in the middle of Isaiah and that covenant promise continues. God's outward faithfulness to us and to our children. And so there was no intercessor for the people of God. Wickedness ruled. Truth had fallen in the street. Yet a redeemer is gonna come and is gonna be that intercessor. Well, if we're gonna make sense of, of who this mysterious figure is, in chapter 61, our text this morning, right? Uh, we, we need to think, okay, what has the Lord been saying thus far? All the way back in chapter seven, in chapter nine, in chapter 59, in chapter 60, even going back in 52.13 to 53.12, it's just all over the place. This mysterious figure begins to emerge. Now, here's the thing. You, you might ask yourself, who is it? Well, whoever it is, he's gonna preach restoration. He's gonna preach deliverance, verse one. He's gonna preach grace and judgment and the two always go together, right? Even when grace has come to you, judgment came to someone else. You understand what I'm saying? We are the recipients of grace. He, the recipient of his own judgment. We see that in verse two. 
He gives us beauty for our ashes, 61 verse 3, right? The clues start mounting up. And if you would think to yourself, okay, I'm ready to raise my hand and take a guess as to the secret identity of this person in chapter 61, uh, perhaps even think I'm going to guess his identity and I'm going to collect him into my empire, collect him into my kingdom. But this is not a game and it's not your kingdom and it's not mine and no guesswork is needed as to who this is. In fact, look with me at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, do you, do you see the way that this morning the Bible is just hanging together? We're just going back and forth from Genesis straight through to the maps all over the Bible. And we're just seeing Jesus everywhere. No need to guess as to who this mysterious figure is in chapter 61. Even if you already have him figured out, the Bible makes it explicit for us in the gospel of Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like what we heard read at the beginning of our sermon? It's our text this morning. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture, Isaiah 61, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son. Now, here's the interesting thing, right? He comes into the synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. Think about it. Jesus was raised on the Old Testament since he was a little boy, right? He grew up singing the Psalms. I think, think of this. He would have grown up singing Psalm 23 as a little boy, and he was actually singing about himself. Because the one prophesied in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He knew the Old Testament so intimately. He was raised on it. He knew every nook and cranny of the Old Testament. By his Holy Spirit, Jesus actually is the author of the Old Testament. Yet of all the texts in the Old Testament, he could have chosen with which to begin his public ministry. He selects our text this morning. And here's the thing. You and I are not entirely unlike those Jews in the synagogue on that Sabbath Saturday. Because today, Jesus standing in our midst by his Holy Spirit. And not a scroll, but the word is opened before you. And by his Holy Spirit, he is proclaiming two basic things about himself in fulfillment of this same text. And those two things are simply this. I am your Messiah and let's get married. I am your Messiah and let's get married. Uh, turn back to Isaiah 61. I am your Messiah He's an anointed preacher. Jesus didn't start his preaching ministry in Luke 4. I took you there, but he didn't start his preaching ministry in Luke 4. His proclamation of the word uh, begins all the way back in the earliest uh, chapters of Genesis. I told you before, Genesis chapter 3, 15, uh, with the promise after he has given us dignity in creation, direction through his law, initiating a rescue mission when we fail, proclaims his gospel in chapter 3, 15, where he is the seed who will come and crush the serpent's head. Theologians call it the proto-euangelion, 
or the first evangel, the first gospel. Right? And every page that follows in the Bible really is the story of our hero rescuing the girl and making her his bride. Right? Isaiah was empowered by the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is the greater Isaiah. He's the true and ultimate prophet. Jesus is spirit empowered for to be a preacher in Luke chapter four, only because he is also the spirit empowered preacher here in Isaiah 61. And what is he declaring? That he has come to bring Basar. He has come to bring Basar in Hebrew. Good news. He's come to bring Good news, this Hebrew word basar appears in key places in, in Isaiah. And in every time it's speaking of good news for those who are gonna be delivered from the bondage of Babylon. We see it in 40 verse nine. We, we see it in 41, 27, 52, seven, and 60 verse six. Good news I have come to proclaim, right? I've come to preach the gospel, the, the good news. But, but this gospel in preachment is first and foremost a gospel in a person, this gospel in preachment is first and foremost a gospel in a person, the person of whom we read in Isaiah 53, verses four to six. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have turned away. We've gone everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So the gospel that Jesus is preaching is the gospel Jesus is in his very Person. And the reason that Jesus could proclaim this basar, this good news in Luke 4 and here in 61, the reason that he could come and euangelisasthai, preach, evangelize, is because he is the returning warrior that we read about in Isaiah 63. In Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6, and look, I'm going to tell you, I don't know if you've ever read this text, it's disturbing a little bit dark in ways. It's, it's, it's even more disturbing than, than a Flannery O'Connor short story. You ever read this text? We, we need to. Look at, look at chapter 63, verses one to six. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And so just as we read back in 59 and 60 that there was no one to intercede and so a redeemer would come, now a warrior comes to defeat the enemies of God's people. Edom with its capital city. Uh, Basra was a heartless enemy of the people of God in the Old Testament, going all the way back to the division between Jacob and Esau, the fountainheads of Israel and Edom. And here's the thing, I don't have to book a flight to go see the ancient ruins of Edom. I only need to travel inward. Edom, Edom's in my heart, right? As my dear friend, Old Testament scholar, Dr. Ray Ortland over at Emmanuel Church says in his commentary on Isaiah, it's a great commentary, you ought to check it out. It wasn't the Assyrians or the Babylonians who defeated Israel long ago. They defeated themselves by saying no to God. They were thinking, 
we're okay. We can handle this ourselves. We, we don't need that much of God. You know how he complicates things. You ever hear that kind of self-talk going on in your own heart? When they rebelled against God, things couldn't just go on as before. God is not mocked. When a child runs into the street right in front of a car, the dad pulls his child to safety angrily. He goes on to say, only love cares enough to get angry and rebuke and discipline. So it is with God. If our lives grieve his Holy Spirit, he will not support our stupidity. And so he's gonna come. He's gonna come in, in discipline. He's gonna come and he's gonna pull us back from danger, the danger of self and the danger of sin. And his garments are spattered with blood as he fought your enemies and mine. It was actually my sin. It was actually the sin of David Filson that spattered blood on the garments of Jesus as he hung upon that cross, paying for my sin and yours. We read of that, do we not, in Romans 3, 27 and following, that God set Jesus forward as a propitiation. That word in the New Testament means a payment for sin that would satisfy the justice of God that I had offended and that, and that you had offended. And now his blood covers you, yet to reject his love, to, to refuse his defense of you, will leave you uncovered on the day of his justice and wrath. This is proof of what Mr. Beaver said to Lucy at the end of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, right? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, right? Jesus cannot be domesticated. Jesus cannot be domesticated. He cannot be tamed, but he is so good. Look at, look at if you will, at Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. We're just going all over the Bible today. Because the Bible hangs together. The Bible is, is the one voice of the Holy Spirit. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. John says, then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the anointed preacher. He is the anointed preacher who has come as a child to redeem, a warrior to defend you and me from our enemies, the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. His robe is, is spattered with blood that my sin caused his own. His own blood shed for me, shed for you. Also that he could make of us an anointed people. In many ways, the whole story of Isaiah is a story about a story. If you go all the way back to Genesis, after our first parents determined to go their own way, to strike out and try being their own gods on for size, only to realize what puny gods they turned out to be, to quote the Incredible Hulk after he smashed Loki around. You remember that in the Avengers? Smashed Loki side to side and just said puny god after Loki protested, I am a god, you foul creature. And the Hulk said, what a puny god. It's kind of the same thing. Right? Our first parents said, we are mighty gods. They realized what puny gods they turned out to be. And, 
And so they hid and, and they ran. They, they, uh, they, they tried to cover their shame and their mourning with paltry fig leaves. Yet God comes, we read in Genesis 3, 27 and following, and he covers them with garments of skin. And if garments of skin, what had to happen? Blood had to be shed. Atonement had to be made, right? Isaiah says, uh, the song remains the same, not quoting Led Zeppelin, but Isaiah says the song remains the same, right? Israel, just like Adam and Eve, they've gone their own way. They're striking out, gonna be their own God, right? They're gonna, they're gonna be high and mighty on their own, yet they wind up with, with the ashes, with the dust of mourning on their heads, wrapped in, in sackcloth, gasping under the crushing weight of despair. Yet Messiah comes. He takes away our ashes and he gives us a crown of beauty. The Holy Spirit, ever the artist, I love this. If you look at the text, the Holy Spirit, ever the artist, inspires Isaiah to say this in a way that his first readers in Hebrew would never, ever forget. Right here, when it says, I'm gonna give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. A beautiful headdress instead of ashes. It's, it's a play on words. I'm gonna give them in Hebrew a pe'er, a beautiful headdress replacing our eper, ashes. A wordplay, a pe'er, a beautiful crown to replace our eper, ashes. So artistically, so that they would never forget, he takes away our ashes. He takes away our shame, our sin, right? Takes away the dust we've covered ourselves with and he covers us with a crown of beauty. And they needed it. Israel needed it. Right? Her haughtiness, her self-sufficiency, her self-promotion, right? All of these things. Her desire to be high and mighty is seen all the way back in Isaiah 3. And in Isaiah 3, verses 16 to 26, we see that Israel had become proud among the nations. And the imagery there is that uh, she is bedecked in finery and jewels. She's glancing with her eyes, tinkling with her feet, trying to seduce the nations, right? And the Lord comes and says, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness branding instead of beauty. You're gonna be owned by enemy nations and they're gonna brand you like cattle. In chapter three, verse 24. You turn to the New Testament in the book of Ephesians, chapter two, verses one to three. Uh, we read Paul telling us there, uh, but you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, fulfilling the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air who is now at work in the sons of disobedience and you all were like them, children of wrath. Right, the picture there in Ephesians chapter two, verses one to three, is that we are dead spiritually. We're, we're like zombies and we're like extras on the set of the walking dead. We're just zombies walking around lifeless spiritually, walking around in, in the moldy grave clothes. We're, we're, just, we're just corpses walking around. You ever find yourself at times like I do, just forgetting who I am in Christ and, and trying my moldy grave clothes back on for size, right? Dipping my toe back into sin, thinking, I got this, I can handle this. And I start trying on those moldy grave clothes, thinking that that somehow identifies me and then that, that, that will beautify me. That's where we are in Ephesians chapter two, verses one to three. But the gospel we see in verse four, I would suggest to you that the first two words of Ephesians chapter two, just two words in English, three in Greek, hadatheos, but two in English, really are what the whole Bible is all about. Those two words in Ephesians two, verse four, 
is really what that whole book in your lap is. Those two words are this. Does anyone know? But God, but God. The whole Bible, this entire book, right? From Genesis to genuine leather, this whole book is a but God book. But God getting up into your business. But God graciously invading us. But God coming to us in our grave clothes. What do we read in verse four? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us and seated us. In other words, we tried to be high and mighty. We tried to raise ourselves up, but we were dead men walking and God comes and says, I will raise you up. I will make you alive. I will take away those grave clothes. I will take away your ashes and give you beauty. I will take away those moldy grave clothes and I will cover you, Isaiah 61.10, with a robe of my righteousness. And then you continue in Ephesians 2. And how does it end, right? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, prepared for good works beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. What is that word workmanship? Poema, 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 poema. What does that sound like to you? Poem. We go from dead men walking to poetry in motion. All because of the grace of this child born who would come and be an intercessor or a redeemer, a warrior, now a preacher saying, I have come to preach good news. I've come to preach the gospel because I am that very gospel. And we are raised and we are seated. Why does our Lord do this for us? Why the beautiful headdress? Why does he take away our ashes and give us a beautiful headdress? Our Messiah is beautifying us for a wedding. And he says, let's get married. Let's get married. Look back at 61, Isaiah. We receive a new calling. What is, what is his is ours, right? What belongs to our heavenly husband is now ours, right? We're gonna, we're gonna get it all, restoration, security, the things that only a faithful husband can provide. We become ministers to our God. We read here in the text, right? Verse six, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. Do you realize I am not the only minister in the room? I am one among many ministers, right? The priesthood of all believers. We are priests to our God. We are priests to one another. We've entered into this already. As you gather on Sunday mornings and you set up together and you pray together and you sing for each other and you serve one another, as you make covenant with each other, the way we did this morning, as you stand so that Nathan and Anna Grace could take a mental snapshot of the people who are gonna be walking with them, right? What are you being but ministers to one another? You being priests to each other, right? You're being the bride that you are becoming. You have a new calling. And that new calling comes from a new covenant. Look at verses eight and nine of Isaiah 61. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, right? Little Micah Robert Scheidler is gonna be known among the nations because God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Their descendants in the midst of the peoples, all who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. The covenant that God's made with us goes all the way back, Genesis 12 to 17, as I was saying earlier. He promises to fulfill it to us and our children, right? That's why, that's why we had the sacrament of baptism earlier and the voice of God as it were. 
uh, as the waters poured over uh, little Micah's head, the voice of God was reminding us of his promise-keeping character this morning, right? Yeah, that name, Micah. You know what the name Micah means? Who is like God? Who is like God? That's what the name means. Who is like God? Do we, do we not read that in Psalm 86, verse 8? Who is like our God and no one's works are like yours, O Lord? Or Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Fix this in your heart, you rebels. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning for ancient times what is still to come. I say my purposes will stand and I will do all that I please. Who is like our God who makes covenant with us and keeps it? He gives us a new calling. He gives us a new covenant and he gives us new clothes. After all, if you're gonna go to a wedding, right? You gotta get some new clothes. Next week, I'm, I'm preaching my nephew's wedding down in Dallas. And so I had to go get me a new suit, right? I had to go get me a new suit. Gotta get new clothes, right? I'm gonna pop at the rehearsal dinner. I'm gonna pop at the wedding, man. Listen, here's the reality. You gotta go to a wedding. You gotta get new clothes, but the bride, right? The bride. Think about this. Those of you who are married in here, do you remember what it was like, brothers, when you looked down the end of the aisle and the doors opened and there was your bride and what she was wearing, right? I remember, I remember like it was yesterday at Kirk of the Hills in St. Louis, right? The aisle was there. We were all up there. The, the doors opened up and just this vision, right? This vision of glory down at the other end, so brightly arrayed, right? I was, I was kind of like, man, dang, I better, I better just put my sunglasses on. It's just so bright here. I can't, I can't, stand, the, the, I can't stand the glare. It was just so bright. There's a purity to it, right? You're gonna get new clothes, Isaiah says. You're gonna get new clothes. Look at verses 10 through 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. See, the headdress is just the beginning. Our heavenly husband gives us all that he has. He covers us in his own righteousness. He gives us a new robe. He says, give me your ridiculous fig leaves you're trying to cover up with. They don't cover much anyway. I see right through them, right? Stop making excuses. Stop your pretense and your posing and your self-justification. I'm gonna take away the moldy grave clothes that are just rotten and full of stench and I'm gonna give you my robe of righteousness. Again, last week we talked about Martin Luther and how he traded in that, that coarse hair monk's robe that he was wearing in an effort at self-salvation and traded it in for a robe of Christ's righteousness, a justitia aliana, an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of him given to him as a gift by Christ. What do we read in Romans chapter 10, verse four? Christ is the end, the telos, the goal of the law, the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to all who believe. You see, Jesus not only died for us, he lived for us we declared that to little Micah just a few minutes ago, that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience and he lived that life of perfect obedience, that life of law keeping for lawbreakers like David Filson and like you. He is the goal, the end of the law for righteousness who all who believe. Because we can't measure up, we're lawbreakers. We believe in the one who's kept the law for us. But you read just a little further in the next chapter, 
In Isaiah 62, verse 2, we receive a new name, just like a new bride receives a new name. You see that? Isaiah 62, verse 2, right? You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Just like a bride receives a new name, we receive a new name. Verse 4, same thing. We're no longer forsaken, right? Verse 5, with a heavenly husband rejoicing over us. That's the beautiful picture here, that our Lord wants to marry us. He was born for us. He went to battle for us. He defended us. He delights over us, right? And if he's rejoicing, think about this. If your heavenly husband is rejoicing over you right now, maybe that's hard to imagine. Maybe it's hard to get your head and heart around the notion that your heavenly husband, the Lord Jesus, rejoices over you. Because maybe, maybe you just feel like the moldy grave clothes are just so tightly clinging to you. And, and, and you've done shameful things and you, and you just carry around shame and, and embarrassment. How could Jesus possibly be rejoicing? But every page of this word is a story of the hero coming to get the girl that he might rejoice over her and make her his bride. And if your heavenly husband is rejoicing over you at the prospect of y'all being married, <laughs> then maybe we should let the party begin ourselves. If, if we are destined for the great marriage supper of the lamb, right? Well, then maybe it's time for us to come to the rehearsal dinner ourselves. That's what we have before us here in the bread and the cup. Uh, as the children make their way back in and the musicians return to help us worship, I just wanna say a couple of things here. Uh, this bread and, and this cup, right? It speaks to us of the same gospel that baptism does. Think of what's going on here. Here you have the word preached. Here you have the word in pictures of baptismal waters and bread and a cup. And what do we see here in this bread and the cup but the gospel itself? And so the Lord's Supper is for those who know they need that gospel. The Lord's Supper is for those who've been baptized into Christ or in fellowship with a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church who would say, I need him to be my defender. I need him to be my warrior husband. Jesus, I come. And if that is you, please, please, in just a few minutes as we make our way to the table, uh, don't remain in your seats. If, if you were here and you would say, look, I don't know that I would identify as a Christian necessarily. Uh, we're thrilled that you're here. If, if you'd say maybe you're just checking out the truth claims of Christianity, this is a great place to do it. Um, you can sit where you are and, and, and watch. You can come down even. And uh, without taking the bread and the wine, which is a way of confessing, I believe in Jesus, you can nonetheless observe and, and watch Christians lay hold of this. Again, a rehearsal dinner, right? Because we're getting ready for a marriage feast. And your Savior has already bedecked you with the robe of his righteousness. And if you could begin to see yourself the way your husband sees yourself, the brightness, the brightness of your righteousness, the way he sees you would be almost too much to bear. It really would. Let me pray. Gracious Father, we would ask now that you would take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and do something extraordinary in us. Take this bread which remains bread, this wine which remains wine, and do not let us remain the same. Help us to believe this gospel afresh. Uh, nurture us and strengthen us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.